You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. This is going to piss off the tech savvy at risk youth, but I feel honor bound to defend Christmas every year about this time by saying, for the love of God, please don't post dirty pictures of yourself in front of a Christmas tree with Christmas lights wrapped around your dick with stockings hung on the chimney with care behind you. Do not bend over and spread your ass and give us the full beaver shot roadkill version or your asshole and your cock and balls in a Christmas context because Christmas – is not sexy. And I'm inspired right now to do this rant even though the tech savvy at risk youth are glaring at me from all over the room because I was just um, running outside the office to get lunch and there's a sex shop across the street from our offices here in Seattle and they have a window display with their hunky male and hot female mannequins wearing dog collars and harnesses and leather muzzles and reindeer horns and red sparkly underpants standing with a Christmas tree. And it is about – the least sexy thing that, that you can imagine because Christmas isn't fucking sexy and no amount of harnesses and dog collars and red sparkly underpants is going to make Christmas sexy. So just stop. You're upsetting me and Sarah Palin. Do you know how hard it is to upset both of us at once with one thing? This will do it. This whore on Christmas stuff that you guys keep trying to pull on us every year. No more whore on Christmas. Leave Christmas alone. It's not sexy. Go to another room that doesn't have a tree in it and take a picture of your asshole and put that online. How hard is that? I posted it to my Instagram, a picture of this unsexy reindeer role play scene going on across the street with the mannequins. And somebody wrote, still, Dan, better than trying to make Easter sexy. And I have to disagree because at least in Easter, you get a flogging scene. You get some male nudity. You get bondage. Easter has all that going for it. And technically Easter is not a snuff scene because the dude comes back to life. So Christmas, less sexy obviously than Easter if you, one, ask me and two, stay away from pastels. And speaking of Christmas, and I shall now leave that. That's your annual don't take a picture of your asshole or your vulva or your cock and balls by the tree PSA. Done. We'll just replay that next year. But speaking of Christmas, my shopping is done. I'm so excited. I've never had my shopping done this early. I hate buying stuff. I, I don't like to go to stores. I don't like to buy shit. I don't have that particular gay gene. But thanks to the website The Colonel and thanks to staff writer Jeremy Wilson, my Christmas shopping is done because I read the story that Jeremy wrote about buying a hymen on the internet. Apparently, you can buy hymens on the internet. It is no secret, Jeremy writes, that the most unusual things can be bought online. Sex, drugs, guns, and cock cages are all being hawked on some corner of the internet or other. We found an online trade that tops all of that, the disturbing sale of artificial hymens. The hymens he found are $29.95. There's an instructional video uh, about how you use these hymens. It looks like a kind of translucent McDonald's ketchup packet and you tuck it into your vagina and then when you are penetrated, it explodes and then there is blood. The blood that you need to bleed apparently when your hymen is burst to convince your obnoxious, controlling, paranoid, patriarchal, asshole husband, brand new husband, 
that no other man has been there before him, that he is your first, that you were a virgin on your wedding night. The instructions read, insert the artificial hymen into your vagina carefully. It will expand a little and make you feel tight. When your lover penetrates, it will ooze out a liquid that appears like blood, not too much, but just the right amount. Add in a few moans and groans and you will pass through undetectable. It does not say what you are passing through. Of course, what you are passing through is some patriarchal horseshit that requires you to be a virgin on your wedding night and not him. Jeremy writes at the Colonel, another online shop makes it much more explicit who the target market is for the artificial hymen. Quote, when a Muslim girl loses her virginity, it can take serious problems for her and make her life into a complete and deep hell. No worry. Here we have help for you. Artificial hymen, most economical, easy, fast and safe way to make you become a virgin again. And how depressing is that? But there's a video that demonstrates how it works and they don't show it going into a vagina. They just show somebody tucking it into their fist and getting their hand wet and then poking their hand with their finger. They pull out a bloody finger. Which had me thinking, you know, that this is potentially the hymen for everyone on your guest list. Male, female, gay, straight, old, young, virgin, not virgin. And it doesn't have to be so, you know, patriarchal. Although Jeremy writes, if ever there were a reason to be horrified at the historic patriarchal oppression of women's stubborn hold on modern life, this is it. In a world where we're constantly being told of technology's potential to drive positive social change, it's galling to see it being used to appease the infantile fantasies of backwards cultures, depressing really. And I thought, you know, he's right. He's right. Anybody who would, in fear of their life, run out and buy an artificial hymen to tuck into her vagina is definitely uh, in fear of a backward culture. Not all those backward cultures are Islamic. There are plenty of fundy Christian kids out there who have the same concerns and paranoias and suffer under the same patriarchal oppression. But watching the video, it just seems to me that a hymen that works in the palm of your hand would also work in someone's ass, anyone's ass. It seems to me that a girl could subvert the shit out of the patriarchy by sticking one of these artificial hymens in her boyfriend's ass and then pegging the shit and just the right amount of a liquid that appears to be blood out of him. And any gay men out there with hymen fantasies, you could order a few. And gay or straight, couples, they could order a crate and spend a long, sensuous evening busting all sorts of hymens, pegging hymens, blowjob hymens, handjob hymens, butt sex hymens, titty fucking hymens, wet willy hymens. There's really nowhere you can't put this exploding artificial hymen. So I think the patriarchy subverting possibilities are endless. And as I said, my Christmas shopping is done. Thanks to Jeremy Wilson, senior staff writer at the Colonel, colonelmag.com. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a heterosexual 22 year old married female living in the Northeast. My husband and I have a long distance relationship due to his career and my college career. We are both supportive of each other in every way and have excellent communication. Because of these two things, we were able to discuss the possibility of an open relationship. We finally decided that a don't ask, don't tell policy with some rules in place would be best for us. As I said, I am a college student. While on campus, I live with three other girls. We have all lived together for three years now and are great friends. Because of this, I decided it was best to let them know what my husband and I had agreed upon. The four of us discussed this, and I told them if they were not comfortable with it because they have traditional views on relationships, then I would not engage in any activity within the house. But they all said they were fine with it and appreciative that we had had the conversation. 
However, after sexually engaging with two men on different occasions, my roommates called a house meeting on me. What occurred for the next few hours is best summed up as a slut-shaming fest focused on me. I was hardly given any room to speak for myself and explain some things. Rather, most of the time was filled with comments surrounding the fact that I was being a hoe with hope tendencies and putting a label on our house. So, my question to you is, how do I deal with slut-shaming roommates? I'm not sure what to do from this point forward. I discussed the situation with my husband, and he reassured me that everything was inbounds and A-OK. Do I tell my friends how hurt I was by their slut-shaming comments? How exactly do I move forward from the situation? Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. If you're a hoe for hooking up with two guys on your college campus in one semester, uh, then 60, 70, 80 percent of all women on modern American college campuses are hoes. Uh, and they're not. They're just hooking up, having fun, having experiences, having sex partners. Uh, clearly, your roommates weren't as comfortable with it, the idea, or, or at least they couldn't anticipate how uncomfortable they'd be with the reality when they told you when you – Approach them in advance and credit to you for doing that to lay out what your deal was with your husband and what, th what they might witness. Uh, they weren't as cool with it as they thought they would be or they were lying to you when they said they were cool with it. Uh, so what do you do now after this two-hour-long slut-shaming house meeting? Uh, well, you could do what you said originally you offered your roommates, which was if you're going to hook up with somebody to spare them the discomfort and to spare your house the – the ignominy of of being known as a place where college students hook up. How awful is that? Uh, you could take the sex to other people's houses. You could go to the dude's house like you originally offered your roommates. Um, but I, I really do think that if your roommates wouldn't let you get a word in edgewise, if they were going on and on and on about this, if their objections were ho and giving our house a bad reputation and not they're worried for their own personal safety, not there were strange men rattling around the house in the middle of the night, not that they encountered dudes in the hallway on the way to or from the bathrooms or in the bathrooms that they didn't know and you didn't know well and they just felt that this was making them unsafe. If that wasn't their objection, and that's kind of a legit objection, but if that wasn't their objection, if it was all you're a hoe and now our house has a reputation as a place where hoes live – you might want to think about moving. You might want to think about writing a long email to your roommates where you get to say your piece if they weren't letting you get a word in edgewise during the conversation and then see how it all shakes out. Maybe these are friends and you guys can have a friendship and continue to have a friendship but not all friends can live together. So maybe you guys can be friends who don't live together or maybe – these aren't really your friends. That's one of the things you discover in your early 20s at college, who your real friends are, who your real friends aren't, um, what sort of base values <laughs> – I'm not saying your values are base but you know, what sort of bedrock values um, someone has to have in common with you and yours for you to have a, 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 a good and decent and mutually supportive friendship. And what you might have discovered is whatever else you have in common with these women, whatever else you share with them, there isn't that sort of – bedrock understanding. There isn't those, those shared bedrock sort of values where you guys can be really good friends to each other. Maybe these women are not your good friends. They are just acquaintances with whom you have a, a pleasant and polite relationship that you mistook for a friendship. That's part of the discovery process of college is learning to sort people into those categories. Who are your real friends? Who are people that you get along with and you can work with and you can socialize with but they're not your friends really. They won't have your back. Unless they're looking for your bags, they can stick a big, fat, slut-shimming knife into it. Hi, I'm a 25-year-old straight man. I have spent the late teen years and my entire 20s thus far in a series of long-term monogamous relationships. 
Um, and I'm newly out of that. And finally, I've realized that I need to spend some time single. But uh, for me, single doesn't necessarily mean celibate. And I'm struggling with the uh, relationship guy syndrome, I guess. When I meet a woman, I don't know if it's a vibe I'm giving off or just the type of women that are attracted to me, but it just seems to want to go in the relationship direction immediately. I would like to experience casual sex for the first time in my life, but I don't seem to know how to do that without being dishonest and uh, misrepresenting myself. It's funny how one person's problem is another person's non-problem. Uh, I get calls from people who can't seem to, who, who can hook up all the time, who have no problem finding a casual sex partner or a one-off, one-night stand, uh, but they have a real problem finding sex in the context of a relationship, a real problem connecting with somebody in an intimate way and, and, and having that sort of relationship. And here you are with no problem, it sounds like, finding uh, girlfriends, no problem uh, having intimate relationships that have a huge sexual component and you want to learn how to do the opposite. You want to learn how to have sex without any sort of relationship tie, without a tracking, tacking toward relationships, without there being any relationship or romantic expectations on, on her part or your part. So it just strikes me as ironic that your problem is other people's solution and vice versa. Uh, the only way out of this, when you meet a girl that you want to be with and she immediately clocks you as boyfriend material, is to, as we say here at the Savage Lovecast, use your words. All you have to say is, I'm not interested in a relationship right now. I've gotten out of a few, you know, I've been in a couple of long term relationships and right now I'm just kind of into being single, but totally into friends with benefits, into hooking up, you're a cool person, uh, I'd like to get to know you better, and I believe, because I listen to the Savage Lovecast, that the operative word in friends with benefits is friends, so if we benefit each other, I will be friendly, I will be there for you as a friend, but I'm not in a relationship. If you say all that, someone who was looking at you as a potential romantic partner will probably still then look at you, and if they're looking at you as a potential romantic partner, if they're thinking you also as a potential sex partner, they may then continue to look at you as a potential sex partner while then knowing, because you used your words, that you are not, at this point, at this time, a potential romantic partner. So use your words, say it with kindness, say it with a smile on your face, and you will probably get your dick sucked in the end. Hey, Dan. I am a 26-year-old gay male just moved to be closer to this guy that I was dating. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it didn't work out between us, but, you know, I've moved on. But since I've moved on, the guys that I've been talking to, I've noticed, they, uh, like my ex-boyfriend, he, he introduced me to Kink. He was a sub, and I had never really, well, I had never been a dom before until he introduced me to it. I was actually, I found it very, uh, satisfying and very, I, I really, I liked it a whole lot more than I thought I would. But these new sub guys that I've met, we don't really participate in, you know, anal sex together, but my roommate was suggesting because these subs are actually really satisfied with the services that I give them. They've all been just hookups so far, but she dropped a little bug in my ear of maybe I should start, you know, like being a dom for pay or a master, I guess is what you would say. Kind of like a miss, you know, some guys, guys hire mistresses or whatever. But I don't know exactly what the 
legal aspects of it is. I mean, paying someone for sexual activity kind of seems like prostitution to me. I mean, you have to forgive my ignorance because I came from such a small place. I've been listening to your podcast for quite some time, but, you know, where would I start something like this? Do I just post it online? Where do I post it? And, you know, how do they get away with this legally? Professional domination is sex work. It isn't prostitution. Uh, I wish Matisse was here, Mistress Matisse. She's our go-to gal on questions about uh, domination and sex work often. But what she does is Mistress Matisse. She does professional domination. And it flies under the sort of legal radar. No, not under the legal radar. It, it isn't illegal because in most pro-doms practices, there's no sex. What you pay for is bondage and being ordered around and being – barked at and maybe having your bottom paddled uh, or spanked and – but there's no sexual contact. There's no her hauling her junk out and you hauling your junk out and sex. So what you're paying for isn't sex. What you're paying for is kind of a little role play, a little mini drama, a little theater for one with just one actor and one audience member but you're both kind of participating, sort of audience participation, BDSM, subdom, theater. But it really depends on where you are and I can't imagine that if you're going to be a professional dominant that you want to do it in Alabama. There are good people in the south. There are nice people in Alabama. But I think the police and prosecutors and newspapers tack sex negative and they will find a way to throw the book at you. They will find a way to charge you. Uh, under prostitution statutes, even if you kept it in your pants and your clients kept it in theirs. Which brings us to a whole other problem with being a pro-dom in a state like Alabama. It really depends on the city that you're in. What you need to have sort of a viable client base is a large enough population where there's going to be a great many kinky people. And so you need a big city usually because then you need you know a certain number of kinky people. Then you need a certain number of kinky people who are willing to see a sex worker, which isn't going to be all kinky people. A certain number of kinky people need to see a sex worker who are also gay kinky people and then who are attracted to you. It sort of winnows it down. It gets narrower and narrower your potential client base the more you think about it. So it's not just like hang out a pro-dom shingle and you'll have guys – beating down your door in Alabama for your services. You need to think about where you're offering this service and how big the potential client base is. And I can't imagine there's really any city in Alabama that's going to have a big enough potential client base to keep you busy. That said, you know, California, New York, Boston, Seattle, Portland, there are cities where it is pretty much safe to be a professional dominant where you aren't going to run afoul of the law because you are not, according to the authorities and in their eyes, engaged in any sort of illegal sex work. You are just dressing up and spanking dudes who like to get spanked and want to pay you for it. They're out there, but you might have to move to where they are if this is what you want to do for a living when you grow up. Hey, Dan. I'm a 40-something divorced mom of two kids, uh, the oldest of whom is nine. My divorce was pretty amicable, and the kids have done really well through the process. Um, recently, I started dating a divorced man, and we like each other a lot. He also has kids in the same age range. He's a good guy, and we've known each other for about five years. We've both since divorced, and we started seeing each other about four months ago. Since it's still early in the relationship, we don't 
foresee making any major moves or changes from the status quo anytime soon, but I wanted to put this question out there for later. Um, right now, he comes over and spends the night with me when I don't have my kids. And between our shared custody and I was at work schedules, he can only spend evenings and occasional overnights at my house. So we are exclusive and we'd like to spend more time together. However, I'm hesitant to allow him to spend the night here when I have my kids. It feels a little weird to me. Uh, I guess I'm kind of old-fashioned. Um, I recently introduced him to my kids as my boyfriend, and they already know and like him as one of their extracurricular teachers. And they were perfectly fine with it. In fact, they seemed kind of excited about it. But this whole relationship thing, when you have kids, you know, can you talk about cohabitation for divorcees with kids, the pros and cons, just your general opinion on the subject? Can we sleep together eventually? Should we talk about it and not talk about it? Just talk about it if they ask us about it. <laughs> I was married for over 20 years, and having a non-married relationship with kids is new territory for me. So any advice you have would be great. Thanks. Well, it's a really good sign that when you explain to your kids that this is your boyfriend, when you introduced him as your boyfriend, that they were happy and they were excited for you and they were glad that you had uh, a special friend, glad that you had a boyfriend in your life. But the general advice, the sort of conventional wisdom out there for people who are divorced and have small children who are thinking about introducing their children to their new romantic partners is to wait to make sure that this is somebody that may be in their lives for a while, to you're really sure that this is an open-ended relationship. Because you don't want to bring new adult figures, new potential sort of father figures, spare fathers because they're still involved with their biological father. They go to his house and he's co-parenting and credit to you both for having an amicable divorce. All divorces should be so amicable as yours. Um, but you are introducing sort of another adult, this, this, this role model, this father figure-ish, vice dad, right? Uh, and you don't want your kids to become emotionally invested in this person's presence not just in your life but in their lives if it's tentative, if he's going to – you know, you guys are still four months into the dating process. You're only together four months, still learning about each other, still figuring out if you are a good match, if you do want to be together. And you know, he may feel differently at six months or seven months. You may feel differently at six months or seven months. What you've learned about each other in the first four months is really usually all the good stuff because you're on your best behavior with each other all the time. And then you know, you get – deeper with somebody. You get to know not just the good stuff that they want to hustle to the front, but you get to know the bad stuff and their flaws. And loving someone despite their flaws, sometimes for their flaws, is what adult love is all about. I don't need to explain that to you. You were in a marriage for 20 years. So this is why the conventional wisdom is wait, wait. Not wait to introduce. I think four months and he's around your house a little bit uh, to, to have met your kids, for them to know you're dating, know you have a boyfriend, that's fine. But for him to start spending nights, I think, at the house with you when your kids are there, waking up with you and your kids in the morning and being this sort of more intimate, more parental-ish presence in their lives, it's too soon. Particularly when you say, we're not exclusive. You said in the call that you know, you're dating, four months, some sleepovers, you like him, he likes you, he's met your kids, introduces a boyfriend, all fine. But then you say, we're not exclusive, which is you know, the, the biggest piece of evidence in your call that you guys still are sussing each other out, that this is still tentative, that you're still deep in the dating discovery process and you may give him his walking papers at six months or seven months or he may give you yours. And when that happens, it will be sad for you uh, and my heart goes out to you. But you don't want that also to be sad for your kids, your kids who have already been through one sort of traumatic loss 
in a way of you know the the twenty four seven presence of the, that father figure in their home in their lives. You don't want to set them up for that kind of disappointment. You don't want this guy to feel obligated to stick around because he now knows that your kids are attached to him. But you also don't want you know your kids to have their hearts broken if the relationship ends. Your heart may be broken, and that's. Dating, that's love and romance. That's what we sign up for as adults when we go in. But we have to be really careful about what we've signed our kids up for when we are adults with small children and we are out there dating. So it sounds like you're doing everything right, actually. It sounds like you're being really thoughtful about this. I do think, though, that you should wait three, four more months before the sleepovers with the kids in the house commence till you're really sure that he's going to be around for a while and that you want him for a while and you're as certain as a person can be about someone else's feelings toward them to know that he wants you in his life for a while. And it's open-ended on his end as well. Hi, Dan. I'm a tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm calling about my partner and I. We've been together for about seven years, and we have a small child together. And we we own a house and have a a pretty intertwined life and everything. A big feature of our relationship has always been uh, drinking alcohol, and we've... um, done it together since the get-go. We, we tapered off almost entirely uh, while we were having a baby, I and mean, it kind of slowly made its way back into our lives. And um, It's always been about a, a $300 a month habit that we've had. Um, every now and then I'll get on a kick where we're, you know, I think we're drinking too much, we're abusing it, and we need to pull back, And but we always kind of end up back in the same habits. Relatively recently, I've been pushing harder and kind of starting to make some ultimatums about our relationship and where we're going. And even more recently, just within the last month, I finally stopped drinking altogether. A really bad side effect of this has been that now my partner's drinking is in a much harsher focus for me. And it's it's really affecting uh, my my view of her and my view of our relationship. And I'm, 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 really hurt when I catch her drinking and that's kind of forcing her into hiding the drinking and, and it's just become a much bigger drop point. But at the same time, like I want it out of our house even more. And I don't know if that's a control issue on my part or what. So I was curious what your advice is on, on kind of how to deal with that. I know she needs her own time and space to kind of come to whatever decision she needs to come to on her own. But what, what do I do in the meantime now that we're kind of in, in different parks on this issue? Okay, so what is your wife like when she drinks? Does she get shit faced? Um, I don't know. Are you a a, a theater fan? There's the Click that they talk about in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, uh, where uh, you know alcoholics kind of get that 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 glazed over eye, and and they're just. You think she's an alcoholic? Wait, wait, wait. Not, you no. you think your wife's an alcoholic? Yeah, I mean, I don't. No, that's her call to make. We we're both relatively heavy drinkers and her, her excuse pattern and things like that are, are something I would think consistent with alcoholism. You, you said you yeah. guys were spending about $300 a month on booze, which breaks down to $75 a week, which when you divide yeah. by two is $37.50 for her share of the booze per week. I go through that in a day sometimes if I stop at a nice restaurant and have a couple of cocktails with a friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound excessive, $37.50 a week on booze, unless you're starving to death and you should be spending that money on pampers and and, and baby food. 
Yeah, I mean, I, to me, it, it seems like a lot. I mean, it, it varies by month. You know, usually I'll get a case of beer, and she usually gets a box of wine. And how long does it take you to go through your case of beer and her to go through her box of wine? Well, she usually we tend to drink mostly on the weekends, and she drinks her box of wine and then kind of goes over to my case of beer usually, and it'll, it'll drag into midweek. And, and, and again, we both tend to drink heavily. We both like to party. But again, like, there's that. Okay, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, like, tend to drink heavily and, yeah. and what the consequences are. You have a small child. Are you incapacitated? Are you blackout drunk? Is it impacting your parenting? Are you not feeding, changing diapers? Are you dropping the baby on its head? Like, what do you mean? What are the consequences here? Well, and so, so I guess where I really start running into issues are, are when it's, it's not just the two of us kind of late at night, but I come in, she's been making dinner or something like that, and she's glazed over and, and she's messed up supper. She hasn't been working on supper because she's drunk to a point where she's kind of not able to, like, do what we've mutually agreed or, like, what we're doing in the, the house. Do you follow what I mean? Like, I do follow what you mean. Yeah. So. I think that you have a right to say to her, you know, we need to dial it back. I've turned it off for a while because I just need a break. But you mm-hmm. can, you can say to somebody, you need to dial it back a little bit. Like you're not making dinner because you're a little tipsy. And you said you were yeah. going to make dinner and you are into the wine and dinner ain't happening. And so what's up? And if, you know, the drinking is interfering with your partnership – in a legit way, then then bring it up, or maybe you could make dinner every once in a while yourself too. But you you can bring it up. But I just I, I I'm always suspicious of somebody who you know gets religion on the booze and then looks at everybody else and sees a drinking problem where one may or may not exist. Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. Like I'm very scared of doing that. But what, but I mean, we're talking where I was about a year and a half ago, I think. You know, I started being like, oh, we're really having problems. We need to cut back. And then we talked about it a lot. And we've even gone through periods where we stopped drinking for a month and, and all was well. But then it kind of, we really kind of quickly get back into this, this pattern of we're being too drunk too early in, in the day on some weekend days. And A, I don't want, you know, my daughter growing up in that environment. And neither does she. But where I can kind of, exhibit this control over the situation my partner really doesn't seem able to mm-hmm. and you know we both acknowledge though that there is a problem but she seems helpless for for how to get control of it and i don't i don't know how to support her properly i guess well i think maybe you know right now you say you want you want the booze out of the house entirely and mm-hmm. That might be a problem. Like that's a little controlling. It worries me that she's hiding the drinking and you're hiding the calling. You said that you yeah, exactly. you hung up the phone when she came into the room when you were trying to record and the I call did, at first. And I, did, I did eventually call back and when I talked to her. I was like, oh, I'm going to call Dan. And this week when your show went on, we were both like, oh, did my call go on? And so, <laughs> yeah, we're – I'm trying to be honest and open about it, but I, it, it, is, it is becoming a control issue and I don't want it to be. I want it to be, you know – Right. Something we deal with together, but I can see it being a, a conflict. D- d- define something we deal with together because if the only outcome that is going to make you happy is for the drinking to stop entirely and indefinitely, perhaps forever, that may be mm-hmm. something that she, A, doesn't want to do and B, doesn't feel like is necessary for her to do and C, might not be necessary for her to do. That if there was yeah. a middle ground, like like right now, is it a situation where she can't drink in front of you without you giving her the stink eye 
In, in which case, ah. she's going to drink surreptitiously, which then is going to you're going to give her the stink eye when you realize she's sneaking it because that's evidence of alcoholism. Uh, and, and, and you, you may be putting her in this impossible situation where she feels like the only compromise, the only solution is for her to stop drinking entirely because it's the only thing that you will accept. If you can accept a glass or two of wine a day, uh, then she won't, she shouldn't have to hide that and she won't hide it. But if you look at every glass of wine like, mm, honey, I don't know, mm, you have a problem, then she's going to put it in a lemonade glass. Absolutely. And so I guess my concern is though, I, I feel like to allow that space, but what keeps on happening is, is she drinks to a point that's beyond control. And, and then I'm having to deal with the mess. What is the mess? So wait, wait, define beyond control and is, define mess. You know, our, our child is awake and wanting attention and she's not able to work with her. And I'm, I'm dealing with whatever toddler issues we have on my own. Uh, define not able to work with her. Is she drinking herself stupid or is she drinking herself blind blackout drunk is she a danger to herself and your child what is going on give me a concrete example so there have definitely been times driving drunk with with our daughter in the car there have definitely been you know times where it's just it's eight o'clock and it's it's oh i thought you were working on dinner and, and she just clicked out and kind of lost it there was you know she she did drink some during nursing which is always a contention point I mean, there's just there's bad decisions. Are those are those concrete enough? Like things I'm not comfortable with. Uh, I, I support you 100. percent I would not be comfortable at all with drunk driving with uh -huh. a child with a child in the car or without a child in the car. It's not okay. And so, if you can point to those concrete examples of ways that the, the drinking is impairing her judgment and imperiling her child and herself. You might want to start with that. And, and I do. And, I'm, and she says, I know. Yes, you're right. You know, I'll, I'll work on controlling it. And then it seems kind of a short span of time before we get into a bad situation again. And so that's where I, I say, like, I don't think the control is there. And that's what concerns me. And I, I don't want to control for her, but I don't know how to, like, force the issue to be addressed in well, some if, way. If she's driving drunk with your kid in the car, you have no choice but to force the issue. If she's driving, okay. if she's driving drunk without a kid in the car, you have no choice but to force the issue, right? Yeah, and so I just say you can't drink this much, you know, or do I say like something? You say to... we need, you say we got to dial it back. We've taken breaks before. Let's take a break now. These incidents have me concerned. We need a reset. So I've stopped. I'd like you to stop. You can stop. We've stopped before. We stopped during the pregnancy, but. Clearly, if you're driving drunk and if there are times when you can't be the parent that I know you are, mm -hmm. then then the booze is a problem and the booze is getting in a way. And we need to figure out a way to either to contain that and constrain it so that you can't have a little limb loosening, relaxing alcohol consumption in your mm -hmm. life without without it endangering you, your child, our family, your future, your freedom. Mm -hmm. and, and, and and we could tiptoe back up to that. But right now, honey, I'm with you now. Like all you had to say was drunk driving with the kid in the car. Right now, honey, it's got to stop for a while. We're going to stop. And let's get into counseling together. Let's go talk. And it, this is something that up for the first seven years of your relationship, you guys did together and you were sort of equally responsible for reinforcing each other's 
alcohol consumption patterns, yeah. then don't say you have a problem. I'm sober now. I've stopped. It's your problem. You have to work on it. Say we've always had this problem. It's you know we're codependent. That would be the term that they would sling around in an alcohol abuse counseling session. But you say let's go see a counselor. Let's talk this out with a mediator. Let's talk this out with an impartial third party because – I don't want you know, just because I'm giving up booze doesn't mean you have to, but you have to get a control over it. And right now, if you're driving drunk in the car, you don't have control over it. Right now, if it's interfering with commitments that you've made to your to me to to your child around shit that's got to happen during the day, you don't have control over it. Let's get a grip on it. And right now, to you know to get that grip, right now it should probably stop for a while. And then if she's okay. drinking, then if she's hiding it from you. As my grandmother hid it from, you know, my grandmother was a crazy raging alcoholic who hid beer all over the house and in her piano and her stove. Then if she's hiding it, you can cite that as evidence of a real alcoholic pattern that is hugely problematic. And if she drinks herself dangerous and it doesn't stop, then at a certain point you have to pull the fucking plug and you need to get your small child out of that situation. You can't – Stand there wringing your hands, wishing it would stop, and seeing your partner impaired and buckling a kid into a yeah. car seat and driving off. And, and I, I totally want to be fair. Like I've driven drunk, and and I've driven drunk with the kid in the car in the past. But I oh. felt like I, I, you, oh my god, what did I do? And I started trying to dial back out of that situation. And while I see regret on her side, I'm not being dialed back. And so I, I don't want to. I, I do agree that it, both of us are in the situation, but I, I don't know how to kind of bring her to my page. Well, I think you, I think you'll have yeah. an easier time bringing her to your page if you're not coming at her with uh, "I'm fine, I'm fixed, yeah. uh, I'm pure and innocent and good and light now, and you're drunk and dark and evil and dirty, and I'm the solution and you're the problem." This is a problem that you guys have shared. If you were driving drunk with the kid in the car too, you're you're both complicit in in the situation that she's in now. That you've okay. had you've had a role in reinforcing these negative behaviors and the problem that alcohol has been in your relationship and and the problem that yeah. alcohol is for your kid yeah, she did yeah, yeah. did she drink while she was pregnant no not while she was pregnant but it was, it was pretty quick after that it came back into our, our life really quick okay well the same impulse that prevents people that inspires people to stop drinking when they're pregnant should inspire people to not drink when they are driving their kid around in a car yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm not of the school of parents can't have a drink. I am not of the school of parents can't have a joint. Sometimes you got like it makes you a better parent to take a little bit of the edge off. You shouldn't get stupid high. You shouldn't get blotto drunk. But sometimes it helps to take the edge off because uh-huh. it's the choice between a glass of wine or homicide sometimes with kids in the house, right? But you got to be wise about it. You've got to be responsible about it. And from what you're describing, and you've won me over. Like I had my doubts listening to your call. You sounded like you know thirty-seven dollars a week on booze for an individual, and you know everything else that you said made me feel like you were making a problem out of something that wasn't a problem. But if she's driving drunk with a kid in a car, it's a problem. If you used to drive drunk with the kid in the car, then it's not just her problem; it's your problem, your yeah. problem together that you both created together, and you're going to have to diffuse it, uncreate it together. And I think the way to do so, that is with the help of a counselor. Okay. And then, I mean, so do, does one just kind of feel it by ear as far as like how long before you, you bow out of the situation? I mean, I'm, I'm willing uh, to do anything. I love her very much. I want to stay <laughs> together, but I, I don't know what the line is 
to... Well, the line is the kid is the most important. The, yeah. the, the, the kid is your ultimate responsibility right now. And if you have to go in there with guns blazing, you have to go in there. It sounds like, it sounds like you want to avoid conflict. You kind of want to figure out how to, you know, bank shot this and, and get her to make these changes in a way where you don't have to have a big knockdown drag out confrontation. But you, you it sounds like you're going to have to have a big knockdown drag out confrontation. Okay. About it. And you're going to, and that's something as ugly as it may be in the moment that you have to do for your kid. Yeah. And, okay. and, 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 and it's really important to qualify it with that. I'm not coming at you as all things good and decent because I've made the same mistake and you know, it was a mistake when you did it. And mm-hmm. it's it so scared me that I've given up booze. I'm not saying you have to give it up, but we got to get, we got to get some control over it. We stopped drinking mm-hmm. for nine months when we were pregnant. We can stop drinking for nine months now. While we figure out how we can have a drink or two in our life every once in a while when we want it and need it without it being as, dis- as, as endangering as it has become in, for both of us. Just emphasize that over and over again. Even though you've stopped drinking for now, it was a danger to your child in both your cases. You both made the same mistake. Yeah, I agree. It's so easy to confront when she's drunk, and then it all just kind of blows over. And then when times are good, it's kind of not even on my radar. But I think when she's not drunk, it just it needs to be a discussion that we have. Have a discussion. Have a confrontation. Okay. Make an appointment with yeah. a counselor. Okay. Make an, find a counselor. Make an appointment. Tell her when it is. Say you're going, and she's going too. Okay. Or you can't force her to go. Say, I'm going. You should come. We need to, we need to work on this together as a couple. For our okay. kid. Get a sober babysitter and go. Okay. Good luck. Well, thank you for calling me, Dan. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. My name is David, and uh, this is not so much a question as a comment. I keep uh, hearing these uh, conversations on your program about the number of women that are only able to receive an orgasm uh, or reach an orgasm through uh, clitoral stimulation, not vaginal stimu- stimulation. And I happen to be one of these men that's not into pornography. And every time I watch pornography, one of the reasons I'm not interested in is that it doesn't seem real to me and it doesn't seem pleasurable. Um, I often watch the men just thrusting in and out of a woman, but there's no contact with her clitoris, uh, you know, in her the pelvis to pelvis motion or anything. It's just a guy driving back and forth into a woman. It just seemed to me that uh, the point is lost on probably many men and uh, many women and probably many women because they never had a good chance when they were young and exploring and the boys didn't understand it. Anyway, that's my theory that uh, it's not so much that they don't uh, want to have a, a cock in them and moving back and forth, it's that they're not getting the proper contact on their clitoris and um, no one's moving in the right way. I'd love to know what you think about that because uh, that is primarily the reason why I am not interested in pornography is it just never looks pleasurable. And when I've been with various women, they say, you know, what do you enjoy? My response to them is always move how it's pleasurable to you and I guarantee you it will be pleasurable to me. It's a sad fact that pornography for so many young people these days is their sex education. So yeah, caller, it's a huge problem when women's pleasure isn't a part of pornography. Uh, And that's 
crazy to say. Like, pornography has a responsibility to show women's pleasure and, and women having orgasms and the central role of the clitoris uh, because pornography is the only sex education that so many young people are getting. But how sad is that? What an indictment of the culture is that? That kids are getting such lousy or non-existent sex education that we look to pornography as the sex educator by default. And if it ain't in there, then they're not getting it and that's a problem with pornography. Actually, yeah, it's a problem with pornography that women's pleasure is so unimportant to most pornographers and most porn consumers. But it's a bigger problem with the culture that pornography is the only sex education that so many kids get. And it's not just – Porn that leaves out women's pleasure. Uh, tragically, it's often also sex education that leaves out pleasure for everybody, but in particular, women's pleasure and girls' pleasure in their sexualities and in sexual expression and in sex itself. Joining me by phone from Sydney, Australia, Emily McGuire. She's a novelist and she's a journalist. She's the author of uh, many novels, but also Princess and Porn Stars, Sex, Power, and Identity. Uh, and Emily and I were recently on a panel together at the Sydney Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And I thank you so much, Emily, for jumping on the phone with us tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. I, I hate to do this, but while we were on the panel, you said something about you know we we were talking about sex ed. Sex ed came up as a uh, an issue in in the panel that we were on, and you said something I'd never heard anybody else say before about the harm and the damage it can do when kids come out of a sex education class without any discussion of women's pleasure, without any acknowledgement that sex is pleasurable for women and girls too, and not just for boys. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think it's something I, I can't believe that, that we don't talk about this more, that the real problem, well, one of the real problems um, with this kind of culturally wide idea that um, men and boys want sex and enjoy sex and women and girls, you know, have sex in order to keep or please men and boys. Um you know, I first started thinking about it a few years ago when I was working on that book. You mentioned Princesses and Porn Stars, and I interviewed these scores and scores of young women and had all kinds of things, and, and these girls and women told me all kinds of intimate things, but if the topic turned to self-pleasure, um, I would get often a real deadly, deadly silence, um, or worse, I would get this kind of denial and disgust. Like, I really remember this one girl, like, ew, I'm not a desperate bitch, you know, uh. um, in talking about masturbation. <laughs> These young women were sexually active. They could describe in detail very happily what they would do with a dick. But there was this, this real shame in the idea of wanting to get off for yourself rather than with or for someone. And the thing is, when girls and boys are being taught this thing that, that girls don't really like sex or shouldn't really like it or want it just for its own sake, that it's only reactive to a particular man mm-hmm. and boys get this idea too that you have to somehow seduce girls into having sex or trick them or, you know, those jokes or worse sometimes serious tips about make sure you do the dishes and your wife will want to have sex or buy her a big diamond or a vat of vodka. The idea is that no girl would want to have sex without all of that stuff and therefore when you're actually doing it, if she's just lying there silently or if she has really stiff limbs, maybe even getting a little teary-eyed, then that's okay because, after all, girls don't really like sex. It's something they're doing to please you or pay you back. So what you have is, at best, really terrible sex and, at worst, rape that's perpetrated by perfectly lovely young fellas who are acting out of a genuine belief that 
this is just how sex is. That sex is fun for them because they're the guys, and it's not necessarily yeah. supposed to be fun for her. So if she doesn't look like she's having fun, it doesn't mean that anything is wrong with the sex that you're having because sex isn't pleasurable for girls. Yeah, and they've got this consent message, right? So no means no, but she's not saying no. <laughs> she's mm-hmm. saying yes, but it might be because she's had a lot to drink or because you've talked her into it. And she's just lying there, and that's that's okay. That's how it works. And and it's a problem too that uh, a lot of young women feel the same way. That it's not, you know, they're not really doing it for themselves. They're not doing it because they have some feeling in them that thinks, hey, sex might feel great right now. They're doing it because this is this is the price you pay to to keep this this fella around. Was female pleasure covered in the sex education classes that you had? Um, no, no. And, you know, this is the thing. I I came of sexual age just before the internet became a thing. So so internet pornography wasn't a factor um, in, in my sexual education. And yet, um, at a public school here in Australia, and, and as far as I know, things haven't changed at all, we were taught um, the biological basics. We were taught that boys would start getting really horny, that they would have wet dreams, that they would have to learn to control their sexual impulses, and we were taught that girls might feel a bit funny. And that was the wording that I remember really clearly. <laughs> and then it, you know, then it went on to teach us about our ovaries and, and <laughs> how we could um, have babies one day. And I was really, really horny as a teenager. And there was no acknowledgement either in sex ed but also you know as I was talking about in that wider culture that that this was actually a perfectly normal way for for a teenage girl to feel because there's stuff going on in your body mm-hmm. and and it was so alienating and frightening and and really made me feel you know that there was something wrong with me and the other side of this myth that as a teenage girl boys and men would always be trying to seduce you and get your pants off and that wasn't happening to me either and so there's this real idea that there's there's something wrong with me because I just want to have sex and it's not a reaction to some person sexualizing me or wanting to seduce me. It's just something in me and and that just felt really wrong. And, and how does the culture – you know, you, you look at like all these – Teenage girls, pre-teenage girls, screaming their heads off at a Justin Bieber concert, panting, <laughs> or you know, previously the Jonas Brothers. There's always some boy group that becomes the focus for all this mass hysterical. I guess hysteria is a loaded and stigmatized word I shouldn't use, but this sort of like you know, screaming, passionate desire. It's yeah. uh, among young girls, and we all see that. We all witness that, and we can't name it. We can't look at these th- this evidence and say. Girls are horny too. It's not a funny feeling. It's a horny feeling. Girls want to have sex too. And, and it's almost good that they have this kind of abstraction, this Justin Bieber to focus it on. Um, yeah. You know, to lance the boil when they're sort of, you know, pubescent or even late prepubescent. And, and there is no appropriate way to like let this ener- sexual energy out. But girls boil with sexual energy. We see it in the culture all the time and yet in our sex ed classes, we will. We'll look at the boys and say, you're horny. We look at the girls and say, you had a funny feeling. And mm-hmm. and it's very damaging, as you said. I think that, that that point is so important, and it really needs to be emphasized that when we tell boys that they're horny and they're going to want sex, and we also tell girls that they're not horny, they have funny feelings, and they're there to be acted on, we put it into the heads of both that there's nothing wrong with a sexual encounter where she gets no pleasure. Yeah, that's right. And and I mean, the whole thing of of teenage boys understanding that that horniness is just going to be part of their life now. We we accept that in mostly in a really good natured way. I mean, we have films and and whole things about boys 
trying to get laid, trying to have sex, and it's kind of a hero's journey to do that. And, you know, really, well, good-natured um, ideas about, you know, of course a teenage boy is going to lock himself in his bedroom for several hours jerking off, so it's just normal. The idea that a girl might spend hours in her bedroom just rubbing one out, you know, or, or be on this actual quest to get laid is still so shocking to so many people and, and still this idea that she must be damaged in some way. Um, and, and part of that is the romanticization of sex for girls too. And you, you even see that in the in the pop idols or whatever that they scream over, the, the language they used to talk about. They are talking about love. <laughs> you know, they, they often feel that they have to couch how they feel um, in these terms of romance or love in a way that boys will just, you know, know that they're just putting a picture of a, a girl in a bikini on their wall to turn on. Um, girls will, will talk about it in terms of relationships and love because it's much more socially acceptable to say that than to say, oh, I'd just really love to fuck him. Curious what you thought of, if you saw the, the movie uh, last year, The To-Do List, or it came out this year, actually, Maggie Carey's movie about... Uh, I haven't seen it, no, but I, I, I'm aware of it, yeah. And, um, it, yeah, I mean, I, it's it's amazing to me. Like, I think the the big movie of, of my teenage years in, in that vein was, of course, American Pie, which was all about you know, the quest to lose a virginity and, and you know, the, the central joke in the, in the centre of it. And I've always thought that's just amazing to think if there could be a mainstream movie or about a girl taking pieces of fruit to, to try and get herself off to see what it would feel like, that it would just not even get released. So knowing what you know now, having, having interviewed all these uh, girls, uh, have, having written this, this book uh, on the subject, uh, Princesses and Porn Stars, um, what do you think needs to be said? You know, if you were going to design a sex ed curricula, what would you have said to a room full of young boys and a room full of young girls about female sexuality and female pleasure? Mm, um, well, this sounds so incredibly obvious, and the fact that, that a lot of people don't know this is a is a is why we need to say it. But it's that sex actually is supposed to be, and often is, pleasurable for everyone involved or both people involved. Um, it's such a basic thing, but I think a lot of people, um, young people, still don't get that. And and also, I would want to emphasise the fact for boys and girls that that female sexuality, heterosexuality anyway, isn't just reactive. It doesn't only exist in the presence of a man. Um, this, to me, is I still think this massive barrier that that gets in the way of sexual pleasure for so many young women is this idea that, that you can only feel sexual or feel good about being sexual if you're reacting to a particular person. Um, and, and it's, you know, that's, that's a really fucked up way of thinking about it and, and causes all kinds of, you know, uh, r- relationships that shouldn't even be relationships. They should probably just be casual fun, but that they have to be romanticised so a girl can justify actually having, having a good time. Um, and I guess in terms of sexual violence, for, for want of a better term in this, is to really get this understanding through to boys and girls that if someone's just lying there or in any other way giving you physical or verbal cues that they're actually not having a good time, that's a sign that something is wrong and you should probably stop and deal with that, have a conversation or, you know, have a break and put things off to later. But it's actually really, really not how it should go, that that one person involved in a sexual encounter should be acting as if they wish they were somewhere else. And as you said earlier, that can set up perfectly decent, nice guys to commit acts of unintentional violation and, and, and sexual violence because what they've been told is, of course, she's not having fun. It's not about her having fun. 
girls don't have fun having sex. Girls have sex to please you. So if she looks miserable, that's the natural order of things. And then you yeah, have- and as long as she's not actually saying no, you know, <laughs> then you know if she said yes and he's just lying there with tears rolling down her face, which is I've heard more than one actual story of sexual encounters like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know that that is actually not not what sex is supposed to be like and and that is a massive signal that that something is wrong there and and you need to stop and and talk about it or walk away if you don't feel you can talk about it but but stop that's that's not what sex looks like right and boys need to be told that if she isn't having fun then you shouldn't be yeah and they're not they're told that sex is fun for you and girls could take it or leave it yeah, and, and that message is just reinforced in so many ways that, that are to do with talking girls into it or tricking them into it or, you know, and and the idea that actually a lot of girls and women, most of us don't need to be tricked into having sex. We we like it mm-hmm. as a, you know, as a general <laughs> thing that we like to do if a particular sexual encounter isn't being pleasurable. It's not because that girl or that woman can't enjoy sex. It's just something that's that's not happening for her right there and then. And this is, you know, I don't want to make it sound like boys are the real victims here. Girls are the victims of this. Girls are much much more brutally victimized by, by this culture that doesn't teach female sexual pleasure or its centrality, doesn't yeah. emphasize its importance. But there are boys out there who will have this kind of sexual encounter where they sort of blunder along, not reading the physical cues because they haven't heard a no or they got a yes, but it doesn't look like she's having fun, but they don't know that that means something because they haven't been told that it should mean something to them, that her pleasure matters and it should exist. And then they realize like two years later, five years later, uh, or in even during the relationship it comes out and they feel awful. And in a way, those boys can be violated too and to a much lesser extent. Than, than the girls yeah. that they've been with. But, you know, any decent guy who gives a shit, who cares, who likes the, the, the girl or, or woman that he's with, who then realizes that they were making this mistake is going to feel awful. So we're not just setting up girls to, to be brutalized and violated and, and made to feel awful. We're also setting up boys to yeah, de- – de- the decent good ones who give a shit to feel awful when they realize what they've been a part of and how the culture set them up not to, to, to fail their partners in this, in this horrible way. Oh, absolutely. I think there can be some you know, lovely guys who, who would be just devastated, just heartbroken to think that they've done this. And, and especially it's the kind of thing that once you point it out and that clicks, it seems so obvious. And I think there can be guilt coming with that. Well, I, of course I should have realized or I should have seen that. But you know, when, when your cultural messages your whole life from official sex ed as well as everything else around you is a particular way, you know, this this can just happen and then it clicks and they, they do feel terrible and awful and it, and it can be a relationship killer if, if, like you say, it's a few years into something and they find out she's, you know, been not not feeling good about this for, for the whole time. It's it's awful and it's heartbreaking that he thinks they've been sharing something um, that, that wasn't there. Emily McGuire, novelist and journalist. She's the author of Princesses and Porn Stars, Sex, Power, and Identity. Check it out. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Emily. I really appreciate it. These are such important points. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old married woman. My husband and I have been married for eight years, but together for 20. We've weathered a lot of different storms, including a few years of living in different countries, family and cultural conflicts, and years of stressful infertility treatments. He's the only person I've ever been with, old-fashioned, I know, but he had a few other partners when we were broken up at one point for about six months. 
in the past few years, we've become more disconnected thanks to his working and traveling a lot and my focusing uh, my attention on our twin toddlers. We've always had a lopsided sex drive problem, but it's become much worse due to stress, hormonal issues, and timing. Basically, I have very little interest in sex at the end of the day, and he ends up jerking off at the computer at least twice a day. I'm sure this is not a unique scenario. I had planned to call you to ask you for advice on what to do about evening up the libido playing field, so to speak. But before I got around to calling you, I discovered that my husband had been having an affair for the past year and a half. This was a deeply emotional, physical, and long-term affair with one of his previous partners, and it only stopped because I caught him. Needless to say, I've been devastated by this. Uh, We talked a lot and decided at this point to commit to rebuilding our relationship. But of course, now our sexual problems are even worse because he's really going without contact, and I'm understandably skittish. I'm having a lot of trouble with not only struggling with my own lack of libido and body image issues as I did before, but now also with a lot of anger and hurt. Do you have any advice on how to get over any of this? How do I get over the mistrust, the anger, the paranoia? How do I improve my own sexual self-image? Here's what always trips me up uh, about problems, calls like yours, is that you're married, uh, you have twin toddlers, you're very distracted, you have a lower libido than your partner, and I don't want to gender this because it's not always uh, the woman with the lower libido and the male with the higher libido, but you have a lower libido than your partner who happens to be male, um, and you have because of the stress and parenting and these toddlers on your hands, you have even less interest in sex now than you did before when you were just idling on your lower than his libido. Now you it sounds like your libido is really tanked. That fucking your husband is just one more goddamn thing that you would have to do that day and your days are busy and stressful and hectic enough and you really don't want to fuck him. And he was fucking somebody else and it was a long-term affair. There was an emotional connection that's threatening uh, to you personally. It's probably humiliating. All these other things that the culture has scripted for you. It is all those things. But on some level, was it perhaps a relief that you were relieved of this responsibility, that you didn't have to milk that cow, that somebody was milking that cow for you? And so your husband didn't come home at the end of the day and look at you like, fuck me, fuck me, fuck me, after your kids had been after you all day going, feed me, feed me, feed me, clean me, clean me, clean me. And so the problem I get into when you know when I try to think deeply about this circumstance, these situations, is you know you're you're told that you will only have sex with your partner all your life, and your partner will only have sex with you. And when you're married, you must be monogamous, and it must be joyful, and you must constantly want to fuck the shit out of each other, or something's terribly wrong. But we also know going into a long term relationship, particularly one with kids, that there will be times when kids and life are so stressful that. One or the other of you will not probably be interested in sex. And then what happens at those times? Well, the other person should suck it up. The other person should go without. The other person should remember what's really important, the commitment, the forsake all others, the children, and just stew. It would be nice if people would do that, I guess. It would be nice if that were easy for people to do. But that's typically pretty hard for people to do and people typically don't do it. People – are wired to have sex. This idea that we are more powerful than sex, that we should be able to control it, control ourselves. To a certain extent, yes, we have to control our sexual impulses. We have to control ourselves. You see somebody hot on the bus, you don't just pull your pants down and wag your dick in their face, right? Because that would be wrong. And so you control yourself all day long. But we are hardwired to seek some release at some point. There's only so long we can go unmilked 
we cows, we humans, uh, before we will go find somebody to milk us if our spouse won't, right? Uh, and I'm not blaming you for the affair. Your husband's a terrible, terrible person who had an affair. He should be spanked. But it's not like you weren't interested in milking that cow and that cow jumped the fence and found a farmer who would milk him. And boy, the gender thing is all over the map now because I've made your husband a lady cow and farmers are always men, right? So your lady cow husband went and found a farmer guy girl and got his ass milked. And it wasn't his ass. It was his dick. And I look at that situation sometimes and I think, you know, what if the affair had gone on for four years or five years and you never found out about it? He was considerate and discreet. Uh, and that consideration and discretion led to the affair being very circumspect and the dalliances being rare occasions because he didn't want you to find out because he didn't want to hurt your feelings because he values you. He loves you. you know, he loves his kids. He loves the family that you two have created and so he kept this thing to a minimum and even though it was a betrayal and everything else, what if you didn't find out and four years on, your kids are six? And they're in first grade and or second grade and you have more time on your hands and you get the wind back in your sails and your libido kicks into gear and you're approaching that midlife thing that women do where suddenly they want to fuck all the time. And you were fucking him all the time. And you know, he let the affair partner go and your relationship revived sexually, and you never ever found out about this person who milked the cow for you for years without your knowledge and kept him happy and sane and home, would you not on some level subconsciously in some other plane, some other dimension where you knew about this, be grateful for that farmer who milked the cow for you over those years when you didn't want to milk the goddamn cow? Maybe. I guess I just have a problem when people say, I don't want to have sex with you, but you made a commitment to me and you're only supposed to have sex with me and I'm not having sex with you. So mm, checkmate. And it's just not the way it works. It's just not the way it has ever worked. Sex is hundreds of millions of years old. We inherited sex. Sex built us. We did not build sex. We did not create sex. God did not create sex. Sex was there for hundreds of millions of years before we came along. We inherited it. Sex built us. It's more powerful than we are. And there's only so long someone who is not asexual can go without before they're going to go out and find it, which is not to blame you for the terrible, terrible, terrible thing your husband did, violated the commitment he made to you, blah, blah, blah. I guess I just wonder sometimes, you know, when you don't want to fuck somebody and Somebody else does fuck that person for you and, you know, kind of you, your husband and you, your marriage, you kind of outsourced that responsibility and it took it off your shoulders. One of the things you say in your call is, no, now, you know, he's not fucking this other person and now, like, there's more pressure on you. Maybe on some level that was a relief. Maybe on some level that was a good thing that he had that piece on the side while your kids were very young. And if it went on for a year and a half and you didn't know about it, that means hopefully – it wasn't such a distraction to him emotionally, sexually, socially, psychologically, intimately that it was really taking anything away from you other than the responsibility to milk that fucking cow. But that's just like the shit I think when I listen to a call like yours. But that's not what you asked about. You want advice on rebuilding your relationship and rebuilding the trust. Hannah Rosen has a terrific piece up at Slate. You should go find it called The Upside of Infidelity, Can an Affair Save Your Marriage? Where she walks – you through, walks us all through um, all the research, all these psychologists and shrinks and analysts now who are kind of 
wrestling with the fact that often a painful affair that causes uh, you know a lot of drama and chaos and heat when it is discovered. Uh, when the wreckage settles, a couple can often come out on the other side of that stronger and more committed and having uh, you know, perhaps not infidelity proofed their relationship going forward because I actually don't think that's possible. But really having a much more honest and open relationship where whatever the problem was, whatever the issue was has been addressed and uh, they know each other in a way now that they didn't know each other before and, and trust does – Reaccrue. I guess you can't rebuild trust. It's not a wall. You can't just build it in a day. You can't have a couple of trust bricklayers come and build your trust wall. Uh, but perhaps trust reaccrues over time, right? It just kind of builds up gradually. And so you might want to read that piece. You might want to uh, go and read about these therapists, Emily Brown, Esther Perel, a few others, who are making this pseudo-radical argument in public now. Uh, it's something that a lot of Family therapists and counselors have not wanted to acknowledge publicly that an affair – because affairs are always supposed to be awful things that lead to nothing but trouble and chaos and doom and shattered homes and destroyed lives and devastated spouses and traumatized children. That affairs can lead to good. It can actually take a couple to a better place than the place they were in before when the affair was going on. Uh, and now people are coming out about this. Counselors are coming out about what they've seen which is a couple comes in for counseling in the wake of an affair and they come back a couple of years later and they're in a much better place, not despite the affair but because of the affair. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you how to, to rebuild that trust. I'm not going to tell you that you should do A, B and C. I'm going to tell you to think about the affair in a much more rational way and whether it was perhaps a blessing in disguise not only because of what it relieved you of having to milk that fucking cow but also because now you and your husband can work on rebuilding your marriage. You can address these issues directly including his legitimate – I don't want to say right because it isn't a right but his legitimate desire for sexual intimacy in his life. And you say that you have a lower libido. You say that you had no interest in sex when your children were young. Your children are still toddlers. What does that mean and what does that mean for him? And what's possible sexually for you two now? And what does he have? Not a right but a reasonable expectation to expect going forward. Have those conversations. Read Hannah Rosen's article, The Upside of Infidelity, Can an Affair Save Your Marriage? at Slate. And think about this. Think about this. Think about whether your marriage, your kids, who the four of you are together and to each other, whether all of that is more important than where his dick has been for the last two years. Hopefully you regard all of that as more important than where his dick has been. Hopefully you can see the signs of his loyalty to you and the fact that he stayed with you, that he's with you, that he went and got his needs met in a stupid way that violated the commitment that he made to you. Yes, yes, all of that. But maybe there's some evidence of a higher loyalty there. He didn't divorce you. He didn't walk out because you were – that because you had abandoned him sexually. He didn't abandon you. He went and found someone who wanted to do for him what you did not at this time, at this stage of life, have any desire to do with him. And maybe that saved your marriage. And so maybe that in the final accounting, that affair wasn't the worst thing that could have happened to you and your family. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old girl from California, um, and I was in high school. And while I was in high school, I became really close friends with a male teacher of mine. And after I had graduated, I, lived, I ended up living um, at his house for three months. And during which time, um, I fell in love with him. 
um, and we proceeded to have a fully consensual, intimate relationship that had to be kept totally secret. Recently, at the high school that I graduated from, where he still works, it came to light that another teacher had taken advantage of a 14-year-old girl. And my boyfriend and my partner at the time supported this girl and ended up helping things come to light and got this man fired, um, got the other teacher fired from his job. The situation has played out the best that it could, but it's um, weighted particularly heavy on my boyfriend. And going into work and being in a secret relationship with me has made him incredibly guilty, and we've since broken up. So as not to be in, like, a very strange limbo space. (laughs) But my feelings haven't changed. I'm still very much in love with him, and it's my understanding that his feelings haven't altered because he's told me that. Um, And I was wondering, Dan, if you had any suggestions about how to move forward, hopefully keeping the relationship, because we both still are in love, and it's been miserable without him around for the week that we've been apart. I had to listen to your call a couple of times to figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, so a quick recap for other listeners who might be uh, similarly confused. You graduated from high school. Some time later, you moved in with a teacher from your high school, a teacher who had taught you, and you became intimate, but you had to keep your relationship secret. Uh, you are now 21, so we don't know exactly when, how long after graduation you moved in, but we know that you are now 21 years old. Um, And during this time, uh, a teacher at the same school where your boyfriend was a teacher and was your teacher was fucking some other student and that came out and your boyfriend, a teacher at the school where this other teacher was fucking a student, um, participated somehow in outing this other teacher who was preying sexually on this minor and abusing his authority and his power and doing something that teachers are not supposed to do, fuck students, fuck current students. You are not a current student of your – Currently ex-boyfriend, you are a former student. This sometimes happens. People have been known to fall in love with someone who once was out of bounds. But later in life, they reconnect and there was something there and there's a connection. The world isn't full of high school teachers who are married to former students. But it is not unheard of for there to be a high school teacher out there rattling around who is married to someone that – Later in life, he re-encountered as an adult when they were both adults. It can be awkward, of course. And maybe it's an awkwardness that your currently former boyfriend does not wish to endure. It's not something he wants to shoulder. It's not something he wants hanging over him when he walks into into school because people may believe, people may assume the worst. They may assume that he groomed you somehow because – you know, pedophilia, even though that's not pedophilia, but he, pedophilia, he, they, they may assume he groomed you somehow. They may assume that uh, the relationship uh, was going on when you were in high school, which it wasn't. It wasn't. But it could complicate his career, uh, his working relationships with other teachers, administrators, his principal. It could really damage him in the eyes of the parents of other girls that he's currently teaching, if he's married or partnered with someone who is many, many years his junior and pretty recently was one of his students. So he might decide to opt out of this relationship right now for professional reasons and you kind of got to respect that. Your boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, your current former boyfriend may be showing 
as Thomas Jefferson once said about something else, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind by ending this relationship. It could be a self-preservation move on his part. You're 21. You're just starting out on life. You don't have a lot at stake here except the emotions. He has the emotions at stake as well if he does indeed love you. But he also has his entire professional life at stake. He has his career at stake. If this should come out, if it should get balled up into the hysteria that perhaps the scandal of the other teacher fucking actual current student created in the school or in your community, he could get swept up and swept away by that if your relationship should go public. You kind of got to respect that. So my advice for you, you're 21. There are other men in the world, other older men in the world. You're young. Go to college. Go have some experiences. Go fuck some other dudes. Go see if there are other men out there that you might feel as strongly and as passionately about as you feel still about him because there probably are. If not, if five years go by, if ten years go by and you're still single and he's still single, you can circle back and it won't be quite the scandal that it would have been if you were 21 and he was 40 or 35 or 45 or whatever it is and you were dating him openly. If you're 28, 29, 30 and he's 40-something and you guys have a better story than she moved into my house when she was 19 and we began a sexual relationship then. After she graduated, we hung her diploma on the wall just so we could see it every morning. It might go down easier in the community. It might be something that he could explain. And you could have that relationship and you could be public in five or ten years' time. So go out. Get out there in the world. Have some fun. Fuck some other guys. And then you know, five years from now, if you're destined to be together, if you guys are meant for each other, five, ten years from now, he'll still be single. You'll still be single and you can pick up where you left off. Hey, Dan. I'm calling in regard to podcast 371, um, specifically the B-Wax person. You know, my advice to her is really get to know a bunch of swingers and organize your own party. And most swingers are super social people who are usually very, very nice. And they try to accommodate other people's um, parameters, just as you said. And I think that she would probably do fairly well as long as she had the group of people at her home or somebody else's home potentially who she knew really well. Um, also, if I were her, I would be fairly careful around meet and greets and other events where um, she encounters swingers as they usually go straight for the lips as they say hello. So, um, yeah, just kind of be careful. Thanks. Hi, I'm a trans man calling regarding the trans man in episode, I think it was 369, who was seeking the surgery. Uh, I spent the past year trying to get a gender alignment surgery, surgery covered by my insurance, and my very first response from them was that it was not medically necessary. So I had to file grievances with the company as well as with my state's Department of Managed Health Care. And after many, many months and dozens and dozens of phone calls and forms and being shut down by any number of bureaucracies, I did get the procedure covered at 100% by my insurance with no copay. So I just wanted to say to him that this is really a civil rights issue and not to give up on it. Um, trans people have physical conditions that require physical treatments. And um, really, it's his job to appeal, appeal, appeal for himself and for the sake of all future generations of trans people. Um, hello, Dan. Listening After listening to episode 371, I just had an idea about the... Uh, 
couple who wanted to party with another one being respectful in parting. And I was just thinking, poly party planner here, why not just make sure you have some low-key music ready to put on? The uh, bathroom has fresh towels and toiletries if they want to freshen up. Maybe even a little finger food kind of snack platter, you know, some of those little toy cheeses and individually wrapped chocolates and finger fruit like grapes or strawberries, and uh, uh, even be prepared to put that in a little to-go package for your friends. And uh, uh, I don't have a whole lot of experience with that, but I know that it worked for me. I was eating a little candy bar in the car on the way home. I would probably think, well, that went well. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Thanks, as always, to all of you Magnum subscribers for subscribing to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. And now you can give the gift of the Savage Lovecast to your friends and family that you think need some savaging. Just go to www... Well, you guys know where to go. SavageLoveCast.com And when you're going to buy a season, just click on Gift and send the gift of the Savage Lovecast at Christmas. Too late for Hanukkah. Still back Christmas. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow novelist and author Emily McGuire on Twitter at McGuire. That's E-M-M-A-G-U-I-R-E. We're putting together a show for early in the new year where we're convening a panel of sex workers and sex workers' rights activists. If you have a question about sex work, a question for sex workers, about their jobs, uh, give us a call. We're going to start banking those questions so we can put them to our sex workers panel when we assemble it early next year. Again, the number 206-201-2720. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy in the Tech Savvy at Rescue. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having